Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. I'm Leona, a third-year chemistry major, minoring in neuroscience. I'm Olivia, a fourth-year chemistry major, minoring in neuroscience. I'm Ariel, almost a fourth-year chemistry major, minoring in neuroscience. I'm Sky, a fourth-year psychology major, minoring in neuroscience. We are all currently taking neuropharmacology with Dr. Kaur at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. We have been assigned a podcast concerning a drug of our choice, so sit back, relax, and welcome to our podcast, Seriously, psilocybin. Psilocybin mushrooms are a type of fungi containing the psychoactive compounds psilocybin and psilocin. Many of you have probably heard of psilocybin referred to as magic mushrooms. And in this podcast, we will discuss just what makes these mushrooms magic and why they are now considered a breakthrough treatment for depression and PTSD. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, An estimated 17.3 million adults in the United States have experienced at least one major depressive episode. The American Psychiatric Association claims that 1 in 11 adults will have PTSD in their lifetime. Almost 50,000 people committed suicide in 2018. The current pharmaceutical interventions for depression and PTSD are inadequate, but new alternative approaches using psychedelics has shown significant positive results for end-of-life anxiety and depression and also PTSD. These novel treatment options have the potential to greatly increase quality of life for many different groups of people who have tried several drug therapies for their mental illnesses without any success could now have another chance. With research and understanding of such a primal drug, people could live better lives and be more than their illnesses. This introduces the issue of treatment-resistant depression, an issue not readily discussed and or mentioned. So what exactly is this? Well, depressive symptoms have been found to be resistant to treatment for about one-third of adults with depression. Some of these persistent symptoms include overall feelings of sadness, sleep disturbances, low energy, and suicidal ideations. The most common definition of treatment-resistant depression is when two different treatments have been attempted using the proper dosage for an extended period of time. What is the proper dosage and time slot that's used? Well, according to a study that examined multiple care centers and hospitals, there was no dosage consistency or time period. Only 17% of the sample followed the previously stated guidelines for treatment-resistant depression. I would say someone who needs a little extra nudge in making progress through psychotherapy, though, and processing through things like treatment-resistant depression, OCD, and addiction could definitely benefit from psilocybin therapy. As far as someone just seeking it out, I don't see how a good trip could be a bad thing. I mean, I think people who might seek out psilocybin for just these purposes, as well as other possible mental health issues, it might be beneficial. Also, while there are specific criteria to diagnose treatment-resistant depression, it's safe to say that most patients with depression don't ever actually achieve full relief from their symptoms with traditional antidepressants. 
there are a lot of factors that go into treating depression, like a commitment to lifestyle changes or seeing a therapist. But there's still a lot to say about the efficacy of traditional pharmaceutical antidepressants. Traditional antidepressants can be really effective in treating some symptoms like focus and fatigue, but these medications can also cause many adverse side effects. The ways in which depression affects the brain are complex and still not fully understood. The research that has been completed so far on psilocybin suggests that psilocybin alters many aspects of the brain that are related to depression symptoms and can also reduce symptoms long-term after just one treatment. Psilocybin mushrooms may provide the desperately needed relief from serious issues like PTSD, end-of-life anxiety, and depression. So how does psilocybin work in the brain, and how is it different from traditional antidepressants? That's a great question, and the truth is we don't quite know yet. It's really interesting how these naturally occurring compounds found in psilocybin mushrooms have such a profound effect on the brain, and we are just now figuring out exactly how they cause the effects that they do. However, we do know that psilocybin is broken down into psilocin by the body, and psilocin is the compound that produces the psychoactive effect. Both psilocybin and psilocin are structurally similar to the neurotransmitter serotonin, which most people think of as the happy molecule. So psilocin then binds to the serotonin receptors in the brain and increases their normal activity. This is what causes the high of a mushroom trip. Serotonin receptors are the targets for many traditional treatments for depression, like SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Psilocin also inhibits an important serotonin transport protein, which then increases the amount of serotonin in the brain. This is really similar to how SSRIs work, and so in some ways, the two drugs are very similar. Yet SSRIs don't produce the altered perception or lasting effects of a typical psilocybin dose. So it is likely that there are other things happening that aren't fully understood yet. So I'm sure these mushrooms have been around for a while. Have they always been taken as a psychedelic drug? To answer your question, Leona, let's go back in time with some historical context. Psilocybin mushrooms have played an important role in societies throughout history, especially related to religion and spirituality. In Central America, the Aztec and Mayan peoples used them in spiritual rituals and thought of them as a way to communicate with the gods. Many psychedelics are used today in ceremonies at wellness retreats as a method of gaining a new understanding or an increased connection to the world. Even further back in history, psilocybin mushrooms may have played a pivotal role in the development of humanity. Some people may be familiar with Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory, which describes psilocybin mushrooms as the evolutionary catalyst that caused a rapid increase in brain size in early humans over a short period of time. Through evolution, human-like descendants of apes quickly matured into a species more closely resembling humans, and one of the biggest physical changes was an enlargement of the brain and skull, which may correspond to an increase in thought processes. Mushrooms are known to induce synesthesia, or mixing of the senses, such as like noises being associated with colors. This and other levels of higher thinking and altered perception during a psilocybin trip may have led to the creation of language and the development of civilization in general and the way people relate to each other. This hypothesis is pretty plausible considering that early people would have been tracking animals for food and therefore could have come across psilocybin mushrooms, which often grow in cattle manure. The first breakthrough in psychedelic research followed the discovery of LSD by Albert Hoffman in 1943. In 1958, Hoffman isolated psilocybin and identified the active compounds in magic mushroom. Shortly after, LSD and psilocybin became associated with the counterculture movement of the 1960s, which was a very pivotal time full of progressive social and political ideas. 
In the late 1960s, early 1970s, the social stigma surrounding drug use led to the banned place on psychedelic drug research in 1967 by the Food and Drug Administration. In 1970, President Nixon signed the Controlled Substance Act, which placed drugs into schedules based on their medicinal use and abuse potential. Psilocybin and other psychedelics were placed in Schedule 1 alongside heroin and scheduled higher than meth and cocaine. The fear of legal repercussions and propaganda denouncing these drugs led to an intense negative social stigma, and all research on psychedelics was halted. So, Liana, what's the deal of drug scheduling? I am glad you asked. Schedule 1 drugs are defined by Congress and the Drug Enforcement Agency, also known as the DEA, as drugs without any medical or therapeutic value and that have a high risk of abuse. This sparks a lot of controversy considering the evidence we've seen with Schedule 1 drugs, obviously psilocybin, but also cannabis and MDMA. They have serious medical potential. The Schedule 1 classification of psilocybin was based on that research done in the 60s. Research in pharmacology is widely advanced since then, as we will mention later on. To reschedule or unschedule a drug is a tedious task. Not only does it have to be approved by Congress, but a new drug application has to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration, and medicinal value has to be proven by extensive animal and clinical trials. It's pretty hard to do this in the first place, but to legally obtain Schedule 1 drugs is even harder because researchers must submit an application to the DEA. This, combined with the stigma of burnt-out hippies eating mushrooms foraged from cow manure, creates an incredible challenge for researchers, both statistically and legally valid. The icing on the cake is that even if psilocybin is rescheduled, because of its consistent recreational use, it will likely only be moved to Schedule 2, which is still highly controlled and probably will only be able to be administered by healthcare professionals. This isn't necessarily bad news, but it still restricts access to people who could really benefit from psilocybin treatment. Either way, it seems that the Schedule 1 classification is incorrect considering the benefits observed both anecdotally and through controlled research. Let's talk about these benefits of psilocybin use. Breaking this down, many recreational users look to psilocybin to give them a fresh perspective, increase creativity, or to break free from the cycle of everyday life. Research so far shows that most people tolerate the drug well and see minimal negative side effects. However, as for some infrequent, more severe side effects, psilocybin has been seen to mimic symptoms associated with acute psychosis, thought disorganization, and hallucinations. There is also thought to be some correlation between psychedelic use and schizophrenia. Although there is currently no significant relationship that points to causation, and this relationship may be explained by confounding variables. What does psilocybin abuse look like, and what exactly is its abuse potential? Abuse potential involves the likelihood of abusing a particular substance, and in this case, psilocybin. This potential is actually very low, and there's no evidence of physical dependence reported so far. However, just because there are seemingly no physical repercussions for using doesn't mean that taking psilocybin can't be risky. There is a strong link between trauma, poverty, depression, and substance abuse. As I mentioned earlier, if psilocybin is rescheduled, it would still be hard to access legally. Since people who may need it the most may not be able to afford adequate controlled treatment, they face a dosing risk. Psilocybin is recreationally administered by ingesting the dried fungus, and the amount of psilocybin in the fungus itself can vary. It's also theorized that psilocybin, particularly when combined with SSRIs can cause serotonin syndrome, causing nausea, vomiting, blood pressure spikes, and even seizures. Not to mention that psilocybin is currently illegal to possess, so those who use it face legal repercussions. Again, without access to regulated psilocybin in healthcare, people face the risk involved with self-medicating. So Ariel, hit them with the research. 
You got it. But before we dig in, you may be wondering if psilocybin isn't new, then why don't we know more about it? Are we just now being willing to perform research on psychedelic drugs? Well, the use of psychedelic drugs in psychiatric research is not something new. There is a past, a present, and even a psychiatric research future for psychedelic drugs. The 1967 ban based on psychedelic substances restricted research. So we are just now picking back up where research left off. The National Institute of Health funded over 130 grants for the psychedelic psychiatric research. However, there have been no new grants as of 2019 since the 1967 ban. As time progressed, technology also advanced. Everything changed with the development of neuroimaging, psychopharmacological studies, and the introduction of small exploratory clinical studies. Researchers in Switzerland were the first to apply modern research methods towards psilocybin research. As for the actual research, we begin our journey in 1999, where there was the first systematic controlled study involving a psychedelic. Roland Griffiths and his team at John Hopkins University in Baltimore explored the self-reported impacts of psilocybin in healthy, non-psychologically ill patients. The study involved healthy neurotypical volunteers, meaning those who do not have mental health issues such as depression or anxiety or OCD or PTSD, received a single 25 milligram oral dose of psilocybin in a psychotherapeutic setting. There was also a control group. This control group received a dose of the stimulant methylphenidate, the active ingredient in Ritalin, commonly used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD, and narcolepsy. As for why they chose this as their control, I'm not really sure. It was not mentioned in this study. However, the result of this study showed that the participants who received psilocybin reported rewarding, insightful experiences, and even for some, reported this experience to be one of the most significant in their lives. The duration of these results were prolonged, lasting for several years, and as for methylphenidate group, there were little long-term benefits reported. The gap between this study and the next is a few years, but no less significant. In 2006, Francisco Moreno, along with his fellow colleagues at the University of Arizona, created the first modern psychedelic clinical trial. Nine subjects with treatment-resistant OCD were given three different doses of psilocybin in an open-label design. Those who received one of the various psilocybin doses experienced significant reductions in OCD symptoms, and there were no noticeable effects regarding significant dosage, along with no serious adverse side effects. This therapeutic potential of psilocybin that caught our interest, because psilocybin may be an answer to treatment-resistant depression. Is there research more recent than 2006, Sky? Yeah, so in 2017, Robin Charthart Harris and his team in the United Kingdom published a functional magnetic resonance imaging, also known as a fMRI study. fMRIs are often used to examine brain activity in different regions with great accuracy. This study closely observed psilocybin's therapeutic mechanisms in 16 participants. These participants' brains were examined using a fMRI to observe the blood oxygen level dependent, cerebral blood flow, and resting state functional connectivity before and after the use of psilocybin in areas of the brain that had been previously associated with depression in past research. 
Yes, I know some of this terminology can be a bit difficult to comprehend. Even I still have issues, but I'm going to try to break it down as best as possible. Charhart Harris and his team predicted that resting state blood flow in the brain and functional connectivity would change immediately and persist long-term. Functional connectivity is present when there is a significant relationship and activity recorded between two regions in the brain. Once the CBF, blood flow in the brain, was measured and the difference calculated, it was clear that after only one treatment, CBF had decreased along with depressive symptoms. Although we still don't know exactly why, decreases in CBF have been discovered in past research that have a positive effect on decreasing depression. Amygdala blood flow was also investigated due to previous studies indicating its possible involvement in depressive symptoms, and it too showed decreases corresponding with decreased depression. The amygdala plays an integral role in emotional processing. Overall, this research provided imagery data and supplies more evidence on the events that occur in the brain once psilocybin has been ingested. It is useful in helping us to further understand the effects psilocybin has on treatment-resistant depression and the physical ways that it impacts the brain. It is also helpful in providing more insight into the specific areas of the brain that are affected and in what ways. Now that we know more about the wonderful effects of psilocybin on treatment-resistant depression, Olivia, you got any info about dosing? Absolutely. So far, all of the clinical studies on psilocybin involve a full dose, causing noticeable changes and distortion in perception. These doses can cause intense psychedelic experiences, and that's what can cause dramatic breakthroughs and lead to long-term positive outcomes. However, these trips can be overwhelming and probably scare away most people from choosing to use mushrooms. But of course, there are other ways to achieve benefits from psilocybin mushrooms. Microdosing of psilocybin has become a hot topic in mainstream media and is gaining momentum in research. The practice of microdosing is usually to take a very small dose causing no perceptual effects a few times a week. It is generally recommended to take the doses three days apart because tolerance develops if used more frequently and the doses would not be as effective. Microdoses are used to boost mental function and mood. Some suggest that psilocybin causes neurogenesis or growth in the brain, and therefore they could be used in treating Alzheimer's and slowing the process of dementia. Since psilocybin is a Schedule I drug, it is difficult to conduct clinical research on microdosing as participants cannot be provided a supply and then would have to come in every day to receive their dose. However, researchers are finding a way to get around this obstacle using the wonderful power of the internet. Online forums like Reddit provide a space for microdosers to discuss their practices and have been used to gather information for a baseline understanding. A study done by Anderson and colleagues is one of the first of its kind and recruited self-reporting microdosers from online forums to answer questionnaires on their microdosing habits, mental health, and other aspects of interest. There is, of course, room for a positivity bias in these non-controlled, self-reported studies, but this one lays a solid foundation upon which future studies can be developed. Also, a new app called microdose.me was launched in 2019 for a research study conducted by the University of British Columbia and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. This is also a self-report study on microdose usage and effects conducted over three months. But the researchers put a lot of effort into recruiting participants who did not want to participate in microdosing, but were still willing to self-report in the same category so that they could create a control group. As for the future of psilocybin, several research trials have recently been approved to begin in 2020. 
If these trial results are positive, medicines could then possibly be approved for clinical practice. As mentioned, psilocybin use has been expanded from treating addiction to assisting in psychotherapy to alleviating PTSD symptoms, and most importantly for our podcast, to treating treatment-resistant depression. It's known that at times people can turn to substances as an escape to life around them. When things get stressful, drug and alcohol use tends to increase as well, especially for those in their late teens to early 20s. This age group faces the stress of growing up along with figuring out what they want to do with their life and even tend to experiment more with illicit substances. As college students around this age range, this has definitely grabbed our attention. As a society and even as a university, we've begun to take mental health and mental illness more seriously. It's about time. Treatment-resistant depression is something new to us and is probably not something readily discussed. The idea that something as controversial as a psychedelic could serve as a possible solution for this condition is crazy to us. We would like to thank everyone for tuning in and listening to our podcast. This was something new for all of us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We would also like to thank our professor at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, Dr. Kaur, for her continued guidance throughout this process as well. Until next time, this was Seriously Philocybin. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project. And thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time.